morning, everyone. Listen, um, the title of this thing is something like where where should we look to invest this year? Well, last year was was quite quite entertaining. Um, so, and this year is is very different. Uh, so, I'll I'll be asking Edward some questions and giving some of my views as well. But I think just to run through some of the the main points is the economy. Um, I think one of the big themes is that we definitely have a K-shaped economy, as it's called. So everyone talks about the U, the V. Um, the K-shape shows certain industries and certain companies and certain areas doing extremely badly um, and others doing extremely well. And I think this yesterday's example of ASOS buying Topshop is, is really an example of that Topshop going bust and ASOS having whose share price increased by 55%. Uh, and sales up 30% uh, over the last couple of years, just shows how different uh, we're gonna be coming out of this. Um, I think the next big question is whether there's gonna be inflation. Um, I'm sure someone will ask about GameStop or Stop Game or uh, whether one should buy silver and go bust like the bunker hunts. Uh, we'll come across that. But uh, I think let's let's kick off on um, on is this going to be an excellent year because <clears throat> having suffered what we've suffered, um, there's actually pent up coiled spring demand. And, and I'll just kick off with one little story is when I had, I had a couple of years ago, um, an Achilles rupture. And as I was lying on the, the surgeons, whatever he's called, Matt or whatever it is, uh, he told me I would be playing tennis in nine months. And I said, how is that possible? And you have a sort of parallel with the economies at the moment or last year where it was complete shutdown. But there were two conditions. He said, one, he has to make an intervention and tie up my uh, Achilles tendon, um, which is pumping huge amounts of money into the economy is the parallel. And the second was that I had to be very diligent on my physiotherapy uh, and follow the rules, so to speak. Um, and he was nearly right because I was a bit lazy on the physio, but I was playing tennis in 12 months. And it's quite extraordinary when you see, he was able to see into the future like Edward can so clearly, what is now looking crazy desperate, can look very different in a few months time. So uh, that's my introduction. Edward, how do you, how do you see it? Because I'm rather optimistic, I must say, coming out of this once the vaccines are done. Well, look, I thank Simon for the introduction. Hello, everyone. Sorry, we're here virtually. Um, well, I think the K recovery you refer to, Jeremy, must be in honour of K Galbraith um, and to sort of illustrate his view of the future. And if there's any one thing I've learnt in my goodness, it makes me sound like an old man, which I am not quite as old as you, Jeremy, uh, when I started in 1982, is be very careful of predictions, uh, as Simon's reminded us that they are in the form of astrology. So I think in terms of markets and outlooks, in terms of probabilities, and I think that there is, I am inclined to a stronger bounce back. You have to make regional differences. Uh, to stand back for a second, I think Asia, for obvious reasons, is in a much stronger position. Um, the caution in all this is obviously vaccine um, and COVID dependent. As if you make the assumptions that we're not going to have endless mutant variations that cause rolling shutdowns and the vaccines largely work, let's call it 90 percent, 
then I think the coil spring of consumer spending, which is roughly, as you all know, two thirds of most economies around the world, should bounce back. The regulator on this, of course, regulation as in an engineering term, is unemployment. And I think in the West, this could be a bit more of a problem because it does depend on government schemes about furloughing or things that look like, to me anyway, universal basic income. We're getting towards that. So as long as governments don't withdraw their support too radically, then I think, Jeremy, we're probably right. We're going to have a reasonably strong bounce back. The vaccine point refers to what sort of measures do need to remain in place to affect those sectors that have been hit hardest like airlines, for example, or hospitality or global tourism. And I think there are bigger question marks on that. But by and large, assuming um, the vaccine does work and is rolled out, I think Europe does have an issue. We can start talking about regions in a second. It's a bit, and some of you will know some of the conditions in different countries better than I. I think they're gonna have a more difficult time. It seems to be one of the things that this little island, the UK, um, has done better in vaccine terms. I think they've cocked up lots of other things, but the vaccine at the moment looks quite good. So re reasonably optimistic, Jeremy. Good, good. I think also, yeah, your, your point about what we've cocked up, I am um, looking at all sorts of, because my wife's French, I see the French newspapers and the other newspapers. I think every government has cocked up. Uh, and I think the press in this country is, is just probably as down on their governments as every press in other countries. So I think uh, you, we think the, the Brits have done badly. I think everyone hasn't done well. Well, it's very, very difficult to have done it. And I think a lot of the press has been unfair and it's useful to, to look through that. Um, on, the, on the investment side, um, you're right that Asia is probably going to come out faster than this. Um, but again, I think it's a year where, you know, you were a stock picker for many years, uh, Edward. So, uh, I mean, stock picking is going to be absolutely crucial. So hopefully the active investors will outperform the passives for a while um, as we see it. So when looking for where to place one's money, I think it's very useful to, to choose a manager rather than just to go into the index because there can be some surprises. Yeah, well, look, uh, poor old active fund managers who've been losing market share in general over the years. Uh, each year, uh, they say, oh, well, next year is going to be a better one. Uh, so I'm, I'm slightly wary of a self-serving argument. Um, I think you're probably right uh, that the dispersion between stocks and sectors should rise. I mean, standing back from COVID, because I think that the danger is because, as as you were saying, Jeremy, if, if you're in the middle of, a, a middle of a medical condition, and I also ruptured my Achilles tendon dancing many years ago, then it, it's hard to get perspective uh, on the future. But I think the analysis, when we get the benefit of history, hopefully we'll see that it's obviously accelerated a number of trends and many people listening will be familiar with some of those you mentioned retail and the rise of technology that's obviously going to continue but I think that the trends that are going to govern all our lives and investment lives and maybe our children are going to be the same things that I think we've talked about at Simon's Forum before uh, namely uh, technology penetration of technology uh, demographics and relative aging rates um, 
around the world, I think is an, an, imp an important point. And then politics and monetary systems. And I think, Jeremy, you're leading to the fact is one of the key questions for investors is how long are we going to live with this extraordinary low levels of interest rates? And now um, government borrowing levels at even higher levels. I mean, you will all remember conversations about is this sustainable before COVID? But we've now added another, well, the Americans have added, I think, 15 to 20 percent of their GDP in terms of COVID bailouts. The Brits aren't far behind. It varies from countries across the world. So I think the inflation question, and I've been wrong on this, maybe I've been brought up in the wrong era, um, but I don't think you can have this increase in spending, money supply, etc., without some effect uh, on pricing. At the moment, it's in asset prices. I don't think it's going to happen in wages for a bit because there is spare capacity, inverted commas. But I suspect uh, in democracies, there's a sort of toleration for a higher level of, of prices than there would otherwise be. And so I think investors, to your point, Jeremy, what, how should people think about the next two or three years? Some form of inflation hedges or protection people should think about having in their portfolio. As we know, timing is very difficult. Um, but I think the balance of probabilities uh, is would suggest that inflation is going to pick up at some point. I don't know what's your feeling, Jeremy. Yeah, yes, I know. Well, given your age, you were brought up uh, with the Chicago school. You're not that much younger than me, I think. It's only just a year. But anyway, uh, we were both brought up with the Chicago school of Milton Friedman saying that uh, inflation is always a monetary problem. But I think, I think my view is actually that inflation is unlikely to pick up because I think all the... Chicago work was based on assuming that, that capacity was pretty full or that the economies were quite tight and there is so much capacity there and as you've seen using the internet as we all do that prices is very very hard to put up prices and how many of you are going to your bosses if you have them well we're all entrepreneurs apparently but and <clears throat> asking for a raise I don't think you're going to get you're going to get short shrift on that uh, where I do see one difference is <clears throat> that the the politics is going to change. The socio-political um, environment is going to change. Whereas for the 80s and 90s, it was all inflation. I think it's all going to be on unemployment and helping the poor. Um, and and this, um, this idea that inequality now has grown to extents like never before. Um, for people who never watched Downton Abbey uh, or Bridgerton, I, I find that hard to believe that it was never as bad as today. But anyway, we'll pass on that subject. It's a whole different debate. But, but really supporting, supporting the poor is thing. And one of the aspects of um, capacity utilization is as we're all growing older, um, it's very difficult for employment to be full capacity as people are working to their 60s, 70s, 80s. And it reminds me of one of the stories that I heard of a supermarket in Florida where there was this old man who kept on turning up late and the, the manager got really annoyed with him and said, come on now, what, what would happen to you when you were working in the army rather than just being a cashier and you turned up late? He said, well, when I turned up late in the army, uh, they'd say to me, good morning, general, would you like your coffee? And I think that's what's going to happen is you have a lot of people with second jobs uh, working, working late. So that all keeps wages down. So talking my own book as a subordinated bondman fund manager, when you were talking about how you protect against inflation, it's less... Get, if inflation does or if interest rates do stay between the zero and 
anything that earns you four or five percent <clears throat> um, doesn't sound very much, but over three years, that's 15% or 16% in your pocket. Um, and uh, Jupiter just came out with a, a bond yielding eight and seven eighths percent. Now, I don't know if one should rush out and buy the Jupiter shares. I'm sure we all should. But UBS yesterday came out with a 5% coupon. So <clears throat> that is 5% in your pocket with relative certainty compared with that's over 50, you know, that's uh, 15% in your pocket with relative certainty over three years. And I'm not sure why they can have that visibility in equities. Um, so if interest rates remain low, there are some nice areas where people are not expecting um, inflation to pick up can, can, um, can benefit. Jeremy, you, you sound as though you've been uh, a bond man all your life. Um, maybe not, maybe I've misinterpreted it. And, uh, and I've been an equity man, so I'm always conscious of what I call behavioral bias. Uh, either unconscious or conscious. So uh, I would expect someone who's been investing in fixed income for the last 60 years to talk in the way that you talk <laughs> and for equity people like me to tolerate the volatility but the higher potential returns generally in equities. So look, I, I take your point on spare capacity. The reason I'm a bit more cautious on, pro on inflation is you know, protectionism is one of the key threats. We've had a bit under Trump. Funnily enough, it wasn't as bad as people thought. Um, but I think the Chinese-US access is going to be a, a question that's going to affect all our lives. And if we're in a benign world where we still have global trade in goods, services, and uh, financial flows, then I think by and large, the world prospers. If, on the other hand, that protectionism increases and the world gets fractious in the proper sense, and Brexit is just a small example of that, uh, regardless of your political views, then I think that gets problematic and, and that puts inflation in the system. There are already quite a lot of price rises around the world that people around this audience will be familiar with. And obviously commodities go up and down. And you're right to say, Jeremy, about wages, because that's the biggest chunk of people's input costs. Um, but I wouldn't dismiss it yet, uh, inflation. I think uh, part of the reason is the, the only way in my view that governments are going to get rid of their debt obligations, which are really from one generation to another, is to either let their currencies go uh, or they change the coupon or they inflate it away. And democracies have a tendency towards inflation because it's, it's the easiest and apparently painless way, except for bond investors, obviously, because it's a form of um, a robbery in, in, in monetary terms. So that's my concern that democracies at some point are gonna deal with debt in that way. Uh, I personally think it's inevitable. I think the debt levels are tolerable, obviously, these interest rates. So look, I hope you're right. Because if we get inflation going back up to even two, three, four percent, which, you know, five, ten years ago, people wouldn't believe these levels, um, then you start having uh, issues. So let's see about in, in yeah, inflation. Yeah. yeah. And I think inflation at two percent really wipes out over 20, 30 years, some, a huge amount of, of the debt burden. So, so yeah. Um, So I'm going to Simon's we're just we're just we're just getting to the uh, the end of our 20 minutes slot. So thank you so much. Um, and questions are coming in and we'll just keep it moving on swiftly. 
Uh, we are. The, 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 the GameStop question is here, guys. Uh, Rob Garrett from in, based in Singapore. Uh, where are you, Rob? I'm unmuting you now. Hi, good, uh, good afternoon from Singapore. Thank you for the um, insights. Uh, braver men than me investing in the public equities markets. Can you explain, particularly in the context of the last two weeks of craziness, the short squeeze on GameStop and now silver that seems to be occurring? And who wins in the end? The institutional investors, the professionals, or the retail man on the street? The tulip grower <laughs> for a while. Transient, um, I think it'll fade away uh, because people adjust their behaviors. I think there's a real huge underestimation of how people adjust their behaviors. So the hedge funds will be much more careful of getting short squeezed. Um, and, um, and then these short squeezes won't happen anymore. And I think uh, Silver's behavior today um, shows that they couldn't push it up more than 8%, but we'll see. Ed, would you have a view? Yeah, well, look, we're right. Uh, Rob, thanks for the question. Look, we're right in the middle of this, so it, it's hard to, to extrapolate from such a short-term thing. Um, look, markets have always worked on the basis of waves of speculation. This is another form of it, uh, of speculation. So uh, is it here to stay? Absolutely, with the, with the digital platforms, the availability of margin. Uh, I suspect it's going to continue. Um, who are going to be the winners? Uh, is, that is hard to say. I wouldn't necessarily divide it into the so-called professionals versus the retails. The, the, the test in the long term, of course, is, is um, not if, but when we have a proper market crash, uh, which we will do, they haven't been abolished, then uh, we'll start to see um, behaviours change because you know margin availability for both the retail and the professional investor uh, determines quite a lot of this behavior. And as we've said, the low cost of money, artificially low cost of money, allows this to continue. So I don't know. I think it's going to continue, in my view, but I think Jeremy is right. Hedge funds are adaptive. And one of the lessons in a hedge fund, I'm not a hedge fund expert, is but you don't want to be in a crowded trade uh, because uh, then your uh, liquidity might be illusionary to close your position, whichever way you're facing that is. Thank you very much. Now, Peter, Peter Osborne. Peter, good to see you there. Can you ask your, we're unmuting you now. Please go ahead. So a question to both really, it's um, you, you referenced technology and investing in technology. I was just wondering if you were talking about um, investing in technology specific businesses that actually, that, that sort of drive and manage thing or, or investing in organizations that were heavily, heavily investing in technologies to drive their businesses forward in terms of driving their own digital economies. Yeah, I think, I think interestingly, the beginning of last year was all about technology companies. And I think probably it's going to pivot to those companies which using technology much more effectively uh, over the next few years. And it doesn't necessarily mean technology companies, talking about healthcare or others. Uh, so when you look at the comparables in the two years time or so, um, you'll probably see sort of non-technology companies using technology very well, which will be performing much better than expected. Uh, and some of the sort of big name technology companies, when you compare how they've done in, the, in an economy where you could only use Amazon or only use uh, you know, the, the, the onlineers uh, will look 
on a comparable basis, probably less attractive. So, so it's a bit of both. But I think uh, using technology rather than technology companies is where I see the opportunities. Yeah, look, I'm not a technology um, expert and, and it, I would incline to agree. It's the use of technology. One of the difficult things in investing, but crucial things is trying to work out what Buffett calls the moat, the protective moat, the barriers to entry in any business. And technology is clearly affecting that across a wide range of industries, but that's an absolutely key assessment. Uh, as obviously it's a statement of the obvious as valuations go up, not just multiples of earnings, but multiples of revenues on businesses that don't make any profits. I'm sounding like a traditionalist again. Um, by implication, you're projecting forward um, the sustainability of a stream of earnings or revenues. So that the problem with technology for investors on the effect of established businesses is trying to estimate how enduring their franchise value is going to be in this fast changing world. And I think that is one of the effects of COVID as Jeremy's referred to, it's affected the acceleration of change in competitiveness of a number of different businesses. And working that out is going to be, well, it's always a challenge. So there's nothing new in that, you might say, but I think that's accelerated. In terms of where to invest, look, I sit on a large charitable endowment foundation, probably like a number of you, and they're advised by Cambridge, like many of these uh, associates, that is. Um, and they're still investing a lot in venture capital in both the West Coast and China. Uh, I think it's an interesting area, but you've got to have expertise. Um, it sounds really interesting, but then look at the hit rate. A number of these businesses are going to fail uh, and a number are going to work in spades. Um, so look, that's not an easy recipe to follow. And most people, certainly I don't have the expertise to do that, but I think investing in uh, technology, small startups, if you've got the expertise, is an interesting area, but you do have to have uh, an install base of capability to do that. And the flip side of this is if you look at your investing in companies and they're not investing a huge amount in technology, then they'll fade away. So um, that's also the use of technology in companies can determine how successful they, they will be or, no, or not. So can I just bring in uh, Paul uh, Tricasas here, who spoke to us before and wrote the book, uh, Go Tech or Go Bust, or Go Tech or Go Extinct, I think it was, Paul. What's, um, what's, what's, your, what's your view? And I might just put that line to you about the fact that Adrian Waldridge, who spoke to us um, before Christmas, the political editor of The Economist, talking about how optimism has flown to the East from the West. And how do, how do you how do you how do you picture that with with regard to the uh, your thesis on technology? I think uh, I think Jeremy and Edward are are uh, pretty close to the mark in terms of my, my beliefs that you, you've got to know what you're doing. First of all, if you are investing in tech companies and in small tech companies, that's critical is to have that that knowledge and have access to the experts in terms of the larger corporates and the incumbents who are using technology. We've got a pretty strong view that most large corporates are not doing that very well, and that few are. And the ones that are, are the ones to consider investing in. So if we're talking about stock picking, then you'd want to pick companies that are going all in like Walmart or GM in the US. Um, there are a few in Europe, Ikea, that are really going all in. And, and, and all in means that they're investing in it, they're doing incubators, accelerators, and they're acquiring tech companies. Those are the ones you really want to focus on. But the companies that are not, 
are in uh, are in terminal decline. Even some of the British stalwarts. Um, I mean, I'm just checking to refresh my own memory. The share prices of BT, BP, Vodafone, Centrica. You know, it's a straight line down over five years. It's not one year. It's not. It's five years. And there are fundamental reasons for that, and they're just not adapting. So the uh, the traditional uh, safe haven that we used to consider the FTSE 100 is no longer the case. And it isn't just the hype over the last year. It goes back five, 10 years. And of course, a lot of that is driven by the continual decline in interest rates, the lower lows and lower highs. And I think that was the key question for me anyway, earlier about inflation. And uh, Jeff Booth is an interesting uh, interesting expert in this area. He wrote The Price of Tomorrow and talked a lot about the deflationary effect of technology. And he believes that interest rates will go negative, uh, go negative in the US and potentially in, in Britain over time because technology grows exponentially. It's not linear. And we humans, you know, we tend to think in a linear way, whereas technology doesn't bother with that. It grows exponentially fast. There's a great blog, if anyone's interested, called Future Loop. Uh, it's a daily blog. It's free. Uh, by Peter Diamand. It's not a blog, but it's a series of articles or, or news announcements. And it's fascinating. In terms of what is happening today, it's absolutely astounding the pace of technology change. I think most people aren't aware of this. Um, and that is, to me, the, the biggest thing to really think about. If we're, if we're an equity investor and we're looking at over more than just you know, a month or, or a quarter in terms of trading, but more long-term, then it's what is the speed of, of this change and is it going to continue to have a deflationary effect while the governments are under pressure to, to, to actually want to have uh, inflation for a lot of reasons? So it's not easy, but it also points to uh, the, uh, the, the, uh, the ideal of being able to stock pick very well. And I guess the final comment I would make, and this is we, we did some research on the death of value investing, which was published in Barron's, and the conclusion is that if you're looking at over the next 10 or 20 years investing for your children, uh, the advice would be to to invest in technology companies, but in a in the in a basket, in the right basket, ten to fifteen you know, efficient um, frontier, ten to fifteen companies. But you can't pick the lows or or, or pick the highs. So you're investing a little bit every single month, um, and you wouldn't be focused just on the West. You'd be looking at Asia for sure and China. Um, so that's yeah, I think that's the thanks, the Paul. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for that. And uh, off the cuff there. And um, we've only got two minutes. So uh, Elizabeth, can I ask you to uh, put your question forth? Uh, and just two minutes, uh, Jeremy and Edward. Yes, of course. Thank you uh, for a great session today. Um, I guess I will ask the controversial question. Uh, throughout the pandemic, uh, we've seen an impressive resilience and growth in the crypto market. And naturally, there's a lot of deregulation, there's a lot of skepticism, uh, and it still is a multi-billion dollar market. So it cannot be ignored. And I would be very interested to hear your take on that. So, go on, Jeremy. Go on, Edward. So you've got, you've got more, if you're, if you're happy to give it more than two minutes, you've got more than two minutes, but we're in, we're in your time zone now, Jeremy and Edward. I think it's still very uncertain. And I know one regrets not having made two and a half times one money in Bitcoin, but there are many stocks, Martin Sorrell stocks, which went up two and a half times. And I could understand that much better. So in terms, in terms of, uh, I think the technology in there is I'm told is there to stay, but I'm afraid I can't give you a, 
a forecast on the price of Bitcoin. Yeah, look, your question referred to is, is this area going to grow? I think it probably will. But, you know, this is not a monetary system that's backed by some sort of legal contract when things go wrong. And that's the issue. Again, I might be sounding like a traditionalist. Uh, when you lose your codes or your Bitcoin or whatever it is or some other currency, where do you go to if you have a dispute? So that's probably going to be sold by future models because the trust in some sort of value-based system is absolutely key for its success. Uh, and if you have a cryptocurrency system, you need to have trust in it that it's a store of value and it's accepted by someone else. So do I think this could be solved technologically and with blockchain? Yeah, I suspect it could be. So um, I think one just has to be careful dismissing it. Uh, I'm certainly not an expert, but this is, again, an example of human ingenuity trying to adapt to a system because, as the gold price would tell you, and I'm not a gold expert or a gold bug, uh, but I think Jim Grant described it well when he said how you, you only value gold because it's the inverse of the lack of faith in global monetary systems. And cryptocurrency is a reflection of the same sort of thing. Uh, and I suspect people are going to get more distrustful, not less distrustful, uh, of the currency system that basically uh, underpins our democracies. So I think they're going to grow. Um, but I think it's going to get difficult, obviously, because they're, they're, they're based on a different system. I, I, I think it was Bitcoin was summed up for me after the, at the end of a 40 minute uh, podcast about why it was such a wonderful thing. And he ended up saying everyone should own, own Bitcoin, everyone about two to three percent of one's portfolio. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> So thank you so much, both of you. The great news for me is that this has been recorded. So when you come back next year, oh, no. we'll, um, <laughs> there we go. we'll have the evidence. So thank you, Edward, in particular to you as a non-forum member. Thank you so much. Jeremy is one of the earliest forum members. Thank you so much. Thank and you. we'll all be in touch again soon. Have a very good day, everybody. Thank you very much. Thank you. Bye. Thank you.